We're bringing this series to a close today, the Be Real series, and I've really enjoyed it the last few weeks, kind of uh, learning how to be authentic, okay, in a world that um, is kind of less than authentic, in a world that kind of celebrates inauthenticism in a way, um, and is, is kind of image obsessed. We want to be real, but we don't just want to be real, we want to be, we want to be the best real that we can be, right? Which, because if I'm a jerk, and I'm being real, that's no good to anyone, right? So I want to be real, but I want to be the real me that God has called me to be, because that's not a jerk, that is a, that's a good guy, all right? And so, so we want to make sure that the real me I'm being is the me I really want to be, kind of, if you get that, uh, to be the best me that God has called me to be. Um, lots of the songs today, uh, we're uh, talking about freedom, uh, we are the free. Uh, we, we sang in that, in that previous song, it was my cross you bore so I could live in the freedom that you died for. And, and in a way, my whole message today is, is couched in this idea of freedom. Uh, Paul, we've been, we've been in Galatians. If anybody's following the Bible reading plan, the Sunny Hill reading plan, it's been great. We've had Meg leading us through it this week. She's been astounding, actually. I thought she'd be so, so good. Um, but we've been, we've been looking through Galatians the last two weeks. Um, and this really stood out to me Galatians chapter 5, it's a well-known um, verse, but it's, 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 it's for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm then and do not let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. What I like about this, this verse is it encompasses all the tenses. Okay, you've got the past tense. Christ has set us free. There's a past event. There's something happened uh, that set us free. And then it says it is for freedom, not it was for freedom or it will be for freedom, it is for freedom, there's freedom available to us now because of this past event and then it says and stand firm then and do not let yourself, so as you go through this life, as you go forward into your future, do not let yourself be burdened again by a yoke of slavery, don't get bound and enslaved by the things that you shouldn't be bound by anymore because He's paid for the freedom in the past so you can live in it now and you can live in it for your lives and experience freedom always. And being inauthentic, not being real, is a kind of slavery. It's a kind of slave you find yourself being enslaved because it's lies, it's, it's untruth. When you're not being yourself, when you're wearing the mask, when you know, we've talked about wearing a mask or wearing a veil or um, you know, being, being so focused on your image that you're not focused on the real you, that is actually a type of slavery and, and you're trying to impress other people. And we can become enslaved to that. I've been watching a TV series on Netflix some, yeah, thanks, Erica. <laughs> um, it's called Drive to Survive. Has anybody seen it? No. Yeah, a few, a few people. Drive to Survive, it's all about Formula One. It's a document. Now, I'm not, I'm not really into Formula One. Sorry, guys. I know a few of you guys are. I'm, I've never really followed it. Um, but it's like a documentary that's followed over the last five years, followed the teams and the drivers uh, in their um, battle to become the best uh, driver, and, and that's really what's grabbed me. The, the battles that are going on uh, between the drivers, because they all want to be the world champion driver of Formula One, they want to be the fastest driver, but there's also the battle between the various companies, the constructors, there's the constructors championship, okay, which is the best company making the best car is also going on, that battle's there. There's also, in each of the constructors' teams, they each have two drivers, and you know, they're part of the same team, 
But actually, these drivers often hate each other. And they re- that, that's the person they most want to beat because they're driving the same car, which means if they're faster, it means like they're actually better because they've both got the same car to play with. So it's, there's, there's all these battles going on, and it's, it's really compelling. And I found myself just watching it and, and enjoying it and kind of getting into it. And, and because these guys are, are the best in the world, they've got these enormous egos. And they're desperate, these guys, these drivers, to be picked as the driver for the top teams, for the Red Bull and the Mercedes and the Ferrari. They want to be picked for these top teams. But as, so there's a battle for that. They also, there's a battle for getting in the top 10 of every race because when you're in the top 10, you earn points, which is great because you, you want points to, to, get, to make yourself, the, the, you know, the, to get the most points to win the championship. And then if you're in the top three, you get to go on the podium and you get a little trophy and probably a bigger paycheck. And then if you're the top one, if, you're the, if you win a race, man, all the accolades that come with that is just mind-blowing. So this is what they're all trying to, to get. And it's weird because I say they've got these egos... But then there's this tension between uh, their ego, like I am the best driver that there is, and also you can see lots of insecurity in there as well. There's so many insecurities in the drivers because even though I won this week's race, next week's race is coming and you're only as good as your last race. And what if there's another driver that's better than me and what if he, he takes my spot on this team? And so there's, there's all these kind of tensions that they lived with and they don't want to lose their position. And we've been talking in this series about being real, about being authentic, being the person that God has created us to be. And we've looked at the number of ways that we try and portray ourselves to other people, try and create an image of ourselves because we think we should be this type of person. So we pretend to be this kind of person. And it's terrible and it's exhausting and it's a treadmill. And I know because I can find myself on that same treadmill. I recognize myself in that. Like, yes, Sunday, particularly on Sunday, like, I'm driving home on a Sunday from church and we've had a great service. And I'm thinking, yes, thank you, God, that was a great service. <gasps> but next Sunday's coming. Oh, what am I going to do next week? What am I going to speak on next? What if I can't get a message? What if, what if nobody comes next week? What if it's a disaster? And I find myself kind of up and down and up and down just like that. And I don't know if you find yourselves in that, in that way too. Um, it's funny because I read a quote from Madonna. Madonna's not a Formula One driver. Um, But there aren't many people in the world who have had the success, certainly in the pop world, that Madonna has had, right, over the last four decades. Uh, And she's achieved a lot of fame, and she's achieved a lot of status. And and I read this interview, this excerpt from an interview that she did with Vogue magazine, and she's talking about her career, and this is what she says, my drive in life comes from a fear of being mediocre. That is always pushing me. I push past one spell of it and discover myself as a special human being, but then I feel I am still mediocre and and interesting unless I do something else. Because even though I have become somebody, I still have to prove that I am somebody. My struggle has never ended, and I guess it never will. So you've got Madonna, you've got these Formula One drivers who who are the top of their game, but they're still struggling with these feelings of inadequacy, of not being good enough, of what's going to happen next week. Um, we're going away tomorrow for a few days. 
holiday, we're going, we're taking the kids to, we're taking the kids, taking me to Disneyland Paris. Um, the kids are coming too. We're just going for a few days. It's going to be, it's going to be great. Um, and you know, there's all these rides at Disneyland. It's got all the roller coasters. You've got the Thunder Mountain, the Space Mountain, the Rock and Roller Coaster. They've got all these 3D screen type rides, all amazing rides. The thing that Eliza's look for, looking forward to is the merry-go-round. The carousel, you know, the horses that just go up and down and round and round. She's so excited about going on a merry-go-round all the way around, back to the start, up and down, up and down. And you never get anywhere on a merry-go-round, right? You just go up and down. And I think, actually, the merry-go-round, he's just thinking about it, it's a great metaphor for living like this. It's a great metaphor. One day you're feeling up, or one moment, you feel up, you're on top of the world, everything's gone right. Maybe you've got some acclaim, maybe you've got accolades, maybe your people have told you how great you are and you're feeling up here. But the next minute, you've just come down again and you're feeling down here and you just, oh, well, you know, you fail or something doesn't go quite well. You lose your temper, you, you do something you wish you hadn't done and so now you're feeling low again and you keep going up and down but round and round and you never get anywhere on the way, sometimes you're up. On the way, sometimes you're down. And I, I wonder if sometimes we flip between these emotions. We go up and down like a horse on a merry-go-round. And as we close out this series, I want us to find an answer for this way of living. I want us to find kind of what's, how, how, do, we, how do we stop this? How do we break free from this? I want us to be free. I want us to be not just authentic, but authentically stable. I want us to be real, but to be the best real that we can be. So we can live the lives that we've been called uh, uh, to live, that God is calling us to live. And I'm not talking about hiding our emotions. I'm not talking about hiding the way we feel. We know that inauthenticity is, is pervasive in the world we live in. And I think we can resist it and find a different path, a path where we can truly be ourselves and find that freedom that Jesus died for us to have. So to find our answer, we're going to go and we're going to lean into uh, one of Paul's letters. Okay, it's a letter. It's First Corinthians. If you have your Bibles, we're going to look at uh, from chapter four. So one Corinthians chapter four, and. Um, Paul was an amazing guy, right? He's a bit of a legend, the Apostle Paul. We've all heard of the Apostle Paul, right? He wrote kind of 50% of the New Testament. He started off life as um, a Pharisee whose job it was to wipe out Christianity. He wanted to do away with this thing called the way. He wanted to get rid of it. And so he went around persecuting, arresting, and even executing members of the way, members of the Christian faith. This was his role. He thought it was his role. He thought he was a God appointed to wipe out Christians. All right? And then we all know what happened. He, he encountered Jesus on the road to Damascus uh, in a big way. And Jesus kind of gave him a vision. And, and uh, he came out of that as one of the apostles. Ended up writing 50% of our New Testament. Like, Billions of people all over the world every day read the Apostle Paul's writings in the Bible. Billions. Like the ultimate influencer, right? Ultimate. We talk about influencer. Paul is the influencer of influencers. He's the guy. He's the main man. Um, 
And even if you are not a Jesus follower, even if you would even call yourself an atheist, you would be hard, to, uh, hard pressed to deny the fact that he's one of, I don't know, five or six most influential people in the history of all mankind because of the effect he's had on this world and the amount of people who, who read what he's written. So this is the Apostle Paul. He had enormous resilience. He had great influence. He had amazing confidence. He moved ahead and nothing fazed him. And yet, and yet, this is what he wrote to his protege Timothy. And he wrote this, not at the beginning of his ministry, but towards the end of his ministry, he wrote, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the worst. He doesn't say of whom I was the worst or I have the potential to be the worst. He calls himself the worst of sinners. And then he explains kind of why. Well, for that very reason, I was shown mercy. I am the worst of sinners and I am shown mercy so that in me, the worst of sinner, Christ Jesus might display his immense patience as an example for those who would believe in him and receive eternal life. Because the truth is, the, more, uh, the, the worse a sinner we are, the greater his grace appears. And to Paul, his grace is just this enormous, all-encompassing thing. Because he says, I, was the wor- I am the worst of sinners. It's crazy, crazy statements. You know, we're not used to somebody who has this amount of success, this amount of confidence, this amount of, of influence, kind of putting themselves down like this or, or giving us the opinion that they're one of the worst people. Now, Paul is someone who gets the, gets the whole be real thing. He really understands it. And we can learn a lot from him. So we're going to pay attention to what he said. So uh, in 1 Corinthians... Paul is addressing division in the church. You see, Paul, he went uh, to Corinth and he started this church. Okay, He formed it and people kind of joined it. And then he left and other people came. There's a guy called Apollos who came. And Peter um, came. The, the apostle Peter also came to Corinth as well. And what you happened, this was something that should have been celebrated. These people, yeah, I was mentored by Paul. Yeah, and I was mentored by Peter. Yeah, and I was mentored by Apollos. These should have been good things. <coughs> but instead, but instead they've turned it into, into uh, kind of antagonism, tensions. I was mentored by Paul. I don't know who you were mentored by, Apollos. Who's that? Like, Paul. Yeah, I was mentored by Peter. Peter's the guy, right? And then there was these fights and there was these divisions coming into the Corinthian church. Because of this, and Paul is writing this letter, you can see he was like, going, what are you doing? Why are you behaving like this? Why are you, why are you making this into a, into a fight? You should be celebrating these things. Um, now, I'm not, we're not going to go into this because I think we have division. I think we don't. I think actually we are all a great church pulling together in the same direction. I love you guys so much. Okay, I think we are. We don't have division. I think we actually uh, are united in so many, many things. But what we can do is we can look at this um, and, and see how Paul tackles this issue and it will give us insight into how we should approach our own identity. All right, I think he's going to give us some truths. Our own self-worth. Uh, by the way, I've called today's message uh, Because I'm Worth It. Okay, now I know I should kind of shake my head and pout at the camera because I'm worth it. Um, um, we're going to look at 1 Corinthians 4 and we're going to see kind of what Paul says to, uh, says to these guys. He says, this then is how you ought to regard us. 
as servants of Christ and as those entrusted with the mysteries God has revealed. Now it is required that those who have been given a trust must prove faithful. I care very little if I am judged by you or by any human court. Indeed, I do not even judge myself. My conscience is clear. But that does not make me innocent. It is the Lord who judges me. Now, I know we looked at this passage right in the very first week of this, of this series. We looked at this, but we're going to unpack it a little, bit, um, a little bit more today. We're going to go a little bit deeper into it. Because right up until the last century, most cultures in the world believed that the biggest problem in the world was people who had too high opinion of themselves. Okay, most points of tension, most points of, of, of war, of aggro occurred because people had too high opinion of themselves. Fru uh, spoke into this a little bit last week looking at Romans 12 where it says do not think of yourself more highly than you ought but consider yourself with sober judgment. Uh, because essentially it's, it's pride. It's pride, uh, as scripture tells us, is something that God hates and ultimately it leads to a fall. And right up until the last century, most people would say that having a too high view of themselves was the cause of most crime, most violence, the cause of abuse, the cause of cruelty. And traditionally this was the reason given for why people kind of mess up. Because they've got too high opinion of themselves. But then in our modern Western culture, kind of the mid part of the last century, uh, we've developed kind of an utterly opposite idea of this. Which is a, a psychologist decided actually it wasn't a high opinion of yourself that was the cause of problems. It was a too low opinion of yourself. Low self-esteem was the cause of most issues. And this idea has, has pervaded society. I, you know, most of us would probably, would have probably seen um, evidence of that. It's, you know, we see that in our education system, in our court system, in our legal system, in our uh, prison system. It, it, it's kind of geared around getting people to have a higher opinion of themselves. Because if you've got a too low opinion of yourself, then of course you need more self-esteem. We've got to raise you up. If you've got too high opinion of yourself, we've got to knock you down. You need to have a lower. That's the way the kind of the world works. And so we've kind of decided as a society that we just need to tell people how great they are and everything will be fine. And as a society, we like this idea because it means we don't have to make moral judgments against people. It means that if I've messed up, it's not because of pride, it's not because I've got too high opinion of myself, it's because something happened in my past that's caused me to have a low opinion of myself and that's, that's kind of much more comfortable uh, to deal with. But now, actually in the last decade, psychologists have started to do a bit of an about turn again. There's a psychologist called Lawrence Slater. She wrote an article in the New York Times and she said there's no evidence that low self-esteem is a big problem in society. And she quotes three kind of current studies into this subject, all of which, all of which reach this conclusion. And she says, this is what she says, people with high self-esteem pose a greater threat to those around them than people with low self-esteem. And feeling bad yourself is not the source of our country's biggest, most expensive social problems. And so this is like kind of turning upside down these, these changes of ideas and changes of opinions. High self-esteem knock them down, low self-esteem uh, build them up. So where do we turn? If high self-esteem is a problem and low self-esteem is a problem, we kind of need middle self-esteem, right? We need to all live in this middle place. But the answer, as the Apostle Paul worked out all those years ago, is actually to just get off that merry-go-round completely. To not live in 
either of those two places. There's a, a Danish theologian called Soren Kierkegaard who said this, spiritual pride is the illusion that we are competent to run our own lives, achieve our own sense of self-worth, and find a purpose big enough to give us meaning in life without God. What he's saying is that we humans and the society we live in, we're constantly looking for ways to build our self-worth, to find our sense of purpose, but we do it at the exclusion of God. And there's this, there's this hole that God has placed in us. There's this need that we all have that's a God-shaped hole. And we try and fill it by getting accolade, by getting appreciation, by getting our value and our worth from, from what other people think. And it doesn't fit it. It rattles around in there because it's a God-shaped hole. It's too big. That hole is too big to be filled by any, which is why Madonna, which is why Formula One drivers, why the most successful people in the world struggle still with it because they have the most acclaim. They have the most adoration and it still doesn't fill that hole because it's a God-shaped hole whole. We can't get our value from anything other than from God. We can't try and fill it with performance because it's not going to satisfy. So let's remind ourselves again what Paul said to the Corinthian church. He said, I care very little if I am judged by you or by any human court. Indeed, I do not even judge myself. So firstly, he's not looking to boost his self-worth, his self-esteem by performing for others because he knows this only provides a temporary win and as soon as he does something that other people don't like, he's going to be back down again and, and, and he's going to be on that kind of merry-go-round up and down and it's not going to work. Secondly, he says, I do not even judge myself. He's not looking to boost his own self-worth by, by creating his own standards. He says, I don't care what you think about me. I don't even care what I think of me. He doesn't say I'm going to set my own standards and live by those because he also knows that boosting our self-esteem by creating our own standards is not going to work either because we'll fall, we'll fail, and then we'll just feel bad about ourselves. Or we'll set low standards and then we'll just feel rotten about ourselves because we're the type of people who set low standards. It doesn't work. Neither way works. And Paul says, I don't pay attention to what other people say about me. I don't pay any attention to what I think about me because I can be just as wrong. And essentially what he's doing is he's coming to this Corinthian church and to us, he's, he's coming from a place of humility. Not, not a worldly version of humility that he's just fishing for a compliment, but uh, what C.S. Lewis calls gospel humility. So in Mere Christianity, C.S. Lewis says this, if we were to meet a truly humble person, we would never come away from meeting them thinking they were humble. They would not be always telling us they were a nobody because a person who keeps saying they're a nobody is actually a self-obsessed person. The thing we would remember from meeting a truly gospel humble person is how they seem to be totally interested in us because the essence of gospel humility is not thinking more of myself or thinking less of myself, it is thinking of myself less. So here's the answer. The answer to high self-esteem is not low self-esteem. And the answer to low self-esteem is not high self-esteem. The answer to both these human problems is to stop thinking about yourself and to focus your attention 
on others. We stop focusing on ourselves and we start focusing our attention. This is what Jesus said. He said, a new command I give to you. Love one another as I have loved you. He said, by this, everybody around you looking on will know that you are my disciples if you love one another in this way. If you focus your attention towards other people. Paul wrote, um, in, again in Galatians, he said, the only thing that counts the only thing that counts, it's a bold statement, right? The only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. This is the way you express your faith. This is the way you express your Christianity. This is the way you express your love for God, by loving other people. Get off that merry-go-round where you're trying to get your self-worth, where you're trying to get yourself up here from other people and start thinking about other people and loving them. Going back to this passage, we see that Paul says, I care very little if I am judged by you or by any human court. Now, he's not writing to a court. He's not writing to a judge or to a, he's writing to a church, but he's using the idea of a court as a metaphor. And he's saying that the problem with self-esteem, the problem with, with living like this, whether it is high self-esteem or low self-esteem, is this, that every day we place ourselves as defendants in a courtroom. Every day, we put ourselves into a courtroom as defendants. And whether we, you know, whether we do good things or whether we do bad things, we're kind of giving, giving uh, uh, evidence for, to the prosecution and to, uh, and to the defense. And everything we do is providing evidence for them. And some days we feel like we're winning the trial. Some days we feel like we're losing the trial. But Paul says he's found the secret. The trial is over for him. I'm not going to put myself in that place where I'm looking for affirmation. He puts himself out of the courtroom because the ultimate verdict is in. And this is really, really kind of lean into this because this is so important these last few minutes. He knows that the human court, you know, the, the court of public opinion, the look, getting your uh, esteem from others is never going to justify him. He said, it is the Lord who judges me. It is the Lord who judges me. Why would he do that? Why would he take his judgment away from people and away from himself and put it for the, before the God of the universe? Surely that's a dangerous thing to do, to put our, to put our verdict in the hands of, the, of God. Why would you want to do that? And this is what makes believing in Jesus so amazing and so different to every other worldview that there is, every other philosophy because in Jesus, when we put ourselves under his lordship, when we allow him to judge us, the verdict is not dependent on our performance. The verdict is not dependent on our performance. The verdict actually comes first. I was talking to somebody this week, I can't remember who it was, but we were talking about reincarnation. We were having a conversation about this whole idea about how in reincarnation you perform well and you move up the ladder of reincarnation, you perform badly, you move down the ladder of reincarnation. Um, and I was thinking how reincarnation is making a comeback. Somebody got, yeah. That was a joke, by the way. It just took a while for that to sink in. I was, reincarnation is making a comeback. No, okay. And this is essentially what so many people believe. 
maybe not in reincarnation exactly, but fate in karma, in I do good things, I get good things. I'm a baddie, I get bad things. And so I've just got to make sure that in my ledger there's more black than there is red. In, in the religion of Islam, you perform to receive the reward and the verdict comes after the performance. In Buddhism, the same thing. You perform to receive the reward and the verdict comes after the performance. And even if you are an, an atheist, you probably believe that your, your positive self-image will come from doing good things and from being a good person. You perform good and you hope to get a good verdict. But that's not where we sit. That's not the world that we inhabit. When we give our lives to Jesus, we believe for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him wouldn't perish but would have eternal life, right? The Bible tells us that while we were yet sinners, while we were still sinners, while we hadn't performed, Christ died for us. The Bible tells us there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The Bible tells us that we are justified freely by his grace. It also tells us that we are saved by grace through faith and that's not of ourselves, it's a gift from God. We get the verdict before we even perform, before we do anything. We stand before God, the judge, when we give our heart to him, before we've had a chance to perform, and before we have done anything good or bad, and he, he taps his gavel, and he says, not guilty. And he declares us righteous. And he tells us we're saved. I am saved by grace, not because I am great, not because I've done good, not because I deserve it, but because he loves me. And this is why Jesus, dying on the cross, could turn to the thief next to him who had just repented but had never done, hadn't done anything good and he could say to him, today you will be with me in paradise because the verdict comes before the performance. That is that's grace. That's amazing grace. Yes. That is what grace is. The verdict comes before the performance. So now I get the verdict that I am righteous, that I am good, that I am made in his image and then my performance is based on that. And then I live that out. I live from a position of being accepted and forgiven. I live my life based on the truth that I am already righteous. I am already good and I already have all the value I need. And this is what Paul knew. And this is what he's trying to get the Corinthian church to understand. And this is what he's trying to get us to understand. That we are out of the courtroom. We are not in trial anymore. We are off that merry-go-round because Jesus went on trial instead. He faced the court, and even though he was innocent, he took the punishment that was due for us, and he took it on our behalf. So I simply come to God, and I ask him to accept me because of what Jesus did. I know that I am a sinner. I know maybe I am the worst of sinners, but I know that his grace is big enough, and I fill that hole with him, with what, his value, what he tells me I am, with the value that I am to him, not to other people. I know I mess up again and again, but God will forgive me because of what he sent his son to do on my behalf. I am worth it. He looks at me and he says, you are worth it. He looks at you and he says, you, because you are worth it. I'm nearly done, but I want us to give her the opportunity today to make a shift in our thinking. 
Basing, basing our life on our performance is something that we all do to some extent. And I want us to remember that it was for freedom that Christ has set us free. And what has he set us free from? He set us free from the judgment of the world. He set us free from the judgment that we put on ourselves. And we need to stand firm and not put ourselves under the yoke of slavery again. How do we do this? Well, actually, we just come to him and he will do it. He will help us with this if we ask him. I told you about watching Drive to Survive, the Formula One program. I'm just going to finish by telling you about another program that I'm watching at the moment, another guilty pleasure, all right? And this is a, a program called The Repair Shop. Yeah, has anybody watched The Repair Shop? Ah, a few more people, yeah. Man, I love this program. Ah, it's so great, right? So if you haven't seen it, you, uh, you've got this cabin, this shed, filled with kind of creative experts, people who are experts in their field. And, and each week, three different people come with their, their old, broken, um, kind of antique or whatever it was. I, had, I saw somebody last week with a, with a 1980s Walkman that was just falling apart and broken. And they bring what it is there, whether it's a work of art or just a bag or something that means something to them or it just has value to them. And, and it, but it's all dented and broken, doesn't work anymore. And they bring it into the repair shop. And the repair shop takes this thing and they, and they, get, they get all the experts around and they decide who's going to be fixing it. And then, and then the, the person comes back I don't know how long it takes, but it comes back. And there's, and there's, a, there's a blanket over the, this thing on the table. And then, and then the, the host says, are you ready to see it? And they take the blanket off. And it's there. And it's fixed. And it's, it's not just restored. It's, it's as good as new. And it's better than it's ever been. And, and it's still got some of the, some of the use and the, and the work in it because that's, that's the character. They didn't want it to be a new thing. They just wanted it to be a restored thing. And the person who came in and brought it in starts to cry, pretty much always. And then the host, he's got tears in his eyes because he's seeing the guy crying. And then the person who fixed it, he starts to cry. And I'm watching it, and I'm crying because I think this is just a beautiful moment. And, and this, is so, this is so what God wants us to do. He wants us to bring our broken life. He's the expert. He made us. He knows how we tick. He knows what needs to go where. He knows what we've tried to fill that hole with. And he wants to bring restoration. And maybe it's, you know, we can picture this, our lives under that blanket right now. And he's saying, are you ready? Are you ready to lift that blanket off and see what I want to do in you, to see what I've actually made you to be? Because the real you is a, is a restored thing of beauty. Yeah, it's still got the character. It's still you, but it's the best you you've ever been. And he wants to do that for you today. I'm getting all choked up. That's the repair shop for you. And he's the great repairer. I'm going to hand over to Nikki, who's going to lead us in a response right now.